0: This is Masters in Business with Barry
1: Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
2: This week on the podcast, I have such an extra special guest. His name is Will Danoff. He runs Fidelity's Contra Fund. It's the largest single manager fund with about $130 billion. And the track record of the fund is just outstanding. He has crushed all the competition over 30 years. He's beat large cap growth by 400 basis points he's beat the S&P 500 300 basis points not only has he outperformed on an annual basis if you put money into his fund versus the S&P 500 in 1990 when he started his fund is now worth two and a half times more than the index is this is really a master class on how to think about active management what you need to do to engage in stock picking why it's so difficult, and why you need a powerful team of experts around you to help you with this. He has worked with all of the greats at Fidelity and explains why Fidelity is such a key aspect of this. I could babble about the conversation forever. Rather than do that, let me just stop and say with no further ado, my conversation with the Fidelity Contra Funds, Will Danoff.
0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
2: My extra special guest this week is Will Danoff. He has been running Fidelity's Contra Fund for just about 30 years. The fund is the largest actively managed mutual fund run by one person. It's about $130 billion. And since September 1990, when he took over the fund he has outperformed the benchmark S&P index by more than 300 basis points annually. Will Danoff, welcome to Bloomberg.
1: Thanks, Barry. It's great to be with you.
2: So that track record is really quite astonishing. You've returned on average 13% compounded annually. Your benchmark, the S&P 500, is 10%. The average large-cap growth fund has returned about 9%. So what is the secret of your success?
1: Yeah, Barry, I think, you know, sometimes you lose track of the percentages, but I think if you had invested $10,000 in the S&P 500, and you should have your fact checkers figure this out, but I think that after 30 years of being up, whatever it is, 10% a year, you're at like 200,000. And if you were invested in contrafund you'd be closer to like 480000 So it really can make a difference. Compounding is an important concept for your listeners when it comes to investing. And to the extent uh, you can find a fund or a company that can compound over time, it really does make a difference over the decades. But I'd say, Barry, for, for me, the North Star has been the importance of analyzing companies, keeping an open mind, working really hard, and staying flexible, having a great team and then maybe just bringing it all back to the earnings per share of the underlying companies and trying to think about, you know, what the company could earn looking out 5, 7 years, you know, will this company be bigger and better? So, I do believe that the growth discipline is a superior discipline, and then, you know, once you've determined what you think the company might earn, looking out to the extent you can look out, and you have to be honest and say, you know, I I really am not sure, you know, in in the world of technology, you have to be really careful about extrapolating growth rates, but then, ideally, you're trying to pay the the best price you can uh, for, you know, a well-positioned growth company with, you know, a good brand and great management and strong cash flow and stuff like that. But I'd say, you know, cast a wide net, be flexible, and then, you know, continue to monitor what your your investments are doing and what your managements are doing. I'm much more of a advocate of the, you know, sort of the poker game approach. I think it's hard to say, you know, XYZ is going to be a buy and hold for 10 years, but, you know, and this is the greatest thing since sliced bread and therefore we're all in. Some investors can do that. I think over over 30 years you you make a lot of mistakes, you accept your mistakes, you learn from your mistakes, but one idea I have is just to say, listen, I think you know, you're, you know, we're playing poker. I have an ace. You're showing a three. I think this is starting out to be a good hand for me, so I'm going to bet some and start to build a position. And then if I'm served another ace, meaning the company, you know, says it's going to expand into California or expand in India or, you know, introduce the new product, and the results show that, those efforts are going really well, then you bet more. So, again, for me, it's a little more incremental and a little less, aha, the light bulb went off, you know, plastics are, you know, we're all in on plastics without data. So, I would say, you know, let's start with the facts. You know, Fidelity is just an unbelievable place to manage money. We've got an unbelievable research team we have you know experts in virtually every industry that matters we have experts in virtually every region of the world that matters we have experts in you know all disciplines in the market value growth small mid large all parts of the cap table you know investment grade high yield convertibles and so you know, Fidelity sort of the big city hospital, Barry. And, you know, for your listeners, you know, do you want to have the brain surgery in, you know, a small regional hospital in the middle of nowhere? Probably not. But if you go to a big city hospital where they're doing large numbers of these procedures, you're probably going to feel better. You know, everybody makes mistakes, but we see more companies, we attend more meetings, we interview more management teams, and through that process hopefully we're going to be able to identify changes that are important in different industries and also just identify what we consider truly world-class management teams that are doing things a little better. and You know, you try to keep track and you do your best. And, you know, I've just survived, frankly, in a very competitive industry, Barry. But, you know, the Fidelity Hall of Fame managers, I mean, Joel Tillinghast, who's managing the low price stock fund, has done phenomenally well. Steve Weimer, who runs our growth fund, has done phenomenally well. We've got a whole cast of other folks in our starting lineup who are doing exceptionally well. And then, of course, you know the long history with going back to you know George Vanderhyde and Peter Lynch, Bruce Johnstone, but even before that, you know Ned Johnson, Jerry Sae. The idea of doing bottoms-up fundamental company analysis is not going away. You mentioned the index, Barry, and you know the index is very hard to beat. Let's understand that there is survivor bias in the index. The better companies like Microsoft and Google and Amazon grow and become a larger part of the index, and the weaker companies, you know, slow down and don't grow and and therefore don't appreciate in value and therefore are a smaller part of the index. So the index is hard to beat. And I agree with Warren Buffett that, you know, the S&P 500 or even the Dow now is, is not the the Dow or the S and P of, of, uh, 75 or 80 years ago, you know, it's, it's a much more cash generative, much more growth oriented, you know, globalization has been very positive for, you know, corporate profits. And I think very positive for society in the world, but we can get into that later. So I, you know, I'd say work really hard, know yourself, know your companies, you know, continue to monitor your companies, try to upgrade on weakness and you know try to be patient in long term you know you mentioned earlier the sort of so much noise now in the market and people yes. worried about every tick you know i i think if you step back and say what do i own you know you know can i imagine you know just look around you and say gosh you know my kids can't live without their smartphones and they they're they, they love their smartphones. You know, and in in Fidelity's case we're able to talk to Luca Maestri, who's the CFO of Apple and you know, he shared with us recently that in the Americas Apple's customer satisfaction with the iPhone is ninety eight percent. And you know, it's like, Oh my god, that's unbelievable and then you step back and say, Well gosh, you know, Ten years ago, no one had you know iPhones, everyone had Blackberries, and now, you know, I have two smartphones, I have a MacBook Air, I have an iPad, and I've got EarPods, you know, and it's, I'm really happy, they all work, and, you know, so you've got to be aware of what's happening in the world, and I think that's often where some... Wall Street folks, particularly the va- the value discipline, can you know get a little confused. It's like you know the classic value trap. It's a really you know cheap stock, but it's not yeah. going anywhere. Doesn't mean
2: it's not going to get cheaper, right? You know, it's a
1: capital intensive cyclical business, and you've got to make sure your assumptions are appropriately conservative.
2: So let's stay with with talking about fidelity a little bit. You mentioned some of the. Uh, The murderer's row, the 28 Yankees lineup you guys have. You started at Fidelity in 1986. But if my research is correct, it wasn't as a fund manager, right? You came in as an analyst? Yes, Barry.
1: An interesting footnote for your listeners. I applied for a summer job in 1985, and I was rejected. So, Barry, one must always persevere. And you know, I think the decision was probably the right one. I was a bit immature and not as experienced, but luckily, I was accepted in for the full-time job as an analyst in 1986. And I think it's important when you think about companies as investments, as employers, to understand the culture of the company. And you know, I'm so grateful and lucky that. Fidelity was and still is a research-oriented, you know, active manager, and everyone you know that I mentioned earlier, all the great fund managers all started as analysts at Fidelity. You know.
2: Oh, really? Does that include Peter oh, Lynch? He started as an analyst.
1: Oh yes, 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 yes. Peter started as an analyst. George was an analyst. Uh, Bruce, of course, a- everyone came up from the ranks, Ned was an analyst, Abby Johnson, who's the current CEO, was an analyst and then a fund manager. So when you have that common experience and common language, it's just so helpful.
2: So you had Vinnick between you and Lynch, right? So, yeah,
1: one, um, Jeff Vinnick, of course, you know, an unbelievably talented uh, analyst, um, and fund manager and investor started my year, but he started in the spring because he had taken a job in New York and then decided he wanted to work for Fidelity. So he started in the spring, but there were about seven of us, including Joel Tillinghast who started a little later that year. And frankly, Barry, I was probably below average for my class. We, you know, we had a very strong class, but I was lucky that I was assigned the retail stocks. And the retail stocks were, it was a large group of stores, you know, consumer spending is something like two-thirds of the U.S. economy and, they had all sorts of different stocks, you know Kmart and Sears were stodgy potential turnarounds and then you had the membership warehouse clubs were sort of the new shiny concept that you had to really think hard about you know what 's this industry going to look like, and then the department stores were sort of slower growers, but generating free cash flow and you know the Walmart was the thoroughbred and you know, it was really fun and and great, and it was relatively understandable. So I think I was exposed to many different types of stocks, and managements all were people sort of people people so you didn't have to try to understand technology or science it was just you know going into a store with a a ceo or a cfo and you know seeing how they interacted with the customer and looking at the prices and you know is this store appealing so anyway but you know the beauty of fidelity is we're all in the trenches together and you know peter and george and bruce were in these meetings with me and many others and you know it was a really great sort of apprenticeship to watch you know these great investors analyze different companies and understand you know the idea of unit growth if i think when i first met bernie marcus the founder of the home depot i think he might have had like 40 stores and now they have 2000 but you know the 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 thought was if it's working in atlanta georgia they can work in Florida and I remember when they first opened their stores and they acquired some stores to expand in Texas, which didn't work out as well. But when they first opened the stores in California, you know, I mean, it was literally there was another concept across the street, and, you know, the Home Depot parking lot was near full, and the other store was sort of going into a bowling alley, you know, it was virtually empty. So, you know, part of it is being practical, you know, sort of what is actually happening. As I said earlier, Barry, earnings per share becomes sort of the, the, North Star for a growth investor, and you know if Home Depot was opening fifteen percent new stores a year and their old stores were generating let's say you know five or ten percent growth and the margins were going up, and the ROI on the new stores was high, you know you start projecting out you know thirty percent growth and whatever that works out to, but you know doubling of earnings in three years with you know the potential for many many more stores so that was a great insight for me that helped me you know and again i over thirty years i all i can tell you is that i was there and i should have you know the the, one of the great lessons learned barry is i should have bought more of these great growth stocks like the home (laughs) depot or you know i was there when howard schultz went public in nineteen ninety four i mean you can't you can't, I mean, it, was, it was 94, 92, but again, I was a young fund manager, but picture this, you know, Schultz had a hundred and, I think 140 cafes when he opened up. They were all in Seattle and Portland. I remember someone sitting next to me on the roadshow lunch saying, eh, you know, it might work in the Pacific Northwest, but you know, they're tree huggers there and they like, you know, to sit around in a coffee shop but it's not going to work in new york or it's not going to work in san francisco but the data showed you know i believe Orrin smith who was the cfo at the time said they had opened a couple of stores in san fran and they were all exceeding their expectations and you know the ROIs and the new units were through the roof i, I think the arithmetic was because they were leased units it cost two hundred fifty thousand dollars to open a Starbucks way back when the stores were doing six hundred fifty thousand of revenue in like year two and a twenty percent EBITDA or cash on cash unit volume. So they were, you know, for two hundred fifty thousand, you were getting one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars of cash in like year two, which meant you could finance rapid growth and it was working and you know the comp store sales you know the comp cafe sales were double digit for the last 3 years it was the perfect story so here's the lesson to your listeners Barry the stock pops on day 1 or day 2 and it was always very expensive for what it was it was like 35 30 times the out year estimate but The company continued to grow and grow and it stayed expensive for like fifteen years. But it was a great stock. Yeah. Yeah, it kept growing, it stayed expensive. So sometimes an expensive stock that executes really well can be a great story you know they added frappuccinos they went out overseas and it worked in china but it it worked everywhere in the u.s and you know no one else was able to replicate i remember Pete's came in and this one and that one and you know mcdonald's was going to offer you know cheaper coffee and try to upgrade but anyway so sometimes you have to say A truly outstanding franchise with a great management team and a great business model can be a great stock. I mean, the analogy in sports would be, you know, what do you pay Michael Jordan or one of these truly exceptional athletes?
2: Whatever the heck he wants.
1: If they, you know, hit the three-pointers and win the championship, you're going to pay them a lot of money. So one of the lessons is that you know, better businesses are going to trade at higher PEs, and you just have to accept that. Now, of course, your listeners have to monitor, you know, a retail investor can go into the stores, they're out there comparing, you know, what Starbucks is doing, the quality of the coffee, the experience in the cafe, you know, how is the mobile order and pay experience, you know, how is the app, is it easy to use, is it delighting me? You know, some of the great entrepreneurs in the last decade have talked to me about, you know, what would the world look like without my company? And, you know, during the COVID pandemic, I think a lot of people have said, you know, if I didn't have Amazon, my world right. would be significantly worse. And isn't that a great place to be if you're a partner with, you know, Jeff Bezos and, and the Amazon team or, you know, there are other a handful of companies that are, you know, Costco, I think, is is one of those special companies that has delighted their members over many years. And, you know, so many people say, my gosh, do you believe, you know, what I just got at Costco? It was such high quality and such a great price. That's the type of company that over 30 years, you know, you sort of say, gosh, I wish I had owned, owned more of those. And by the way, it's it's not, it's not a little easier than, you know, when I first started in the early 90s as a fund manager, I was trying to find companies that no one else had heard of, that no one else owned. And, you know, there are a lot of tough businesses that are selling cheap, and I was running around saying cheap and getting better. Let's try to find a turnaround. And, you know, turnarounds... Sometimes work, they can be really awesome stocks when they do work, but the degree of difficulty is higher than just saying, my gosh, you know, Google is just unbelievable. You know, how did we live without Google? Or, you know, how did we live, you know, without Amazon, for example?
2: You're coming up on your 30th anniversary, right? By the time this broadcasts, it'll be September 2020. You started at the Contra Fund in September... 1990, did you ever yes. imagine you would be running the same exact fund for 30 years?
1: Honestly, Barry, no. I think, you know, again, as I said, Fidelity is a great place to manage money. There's some very, very talented and and fun people, and we, you know, continue to attract some really good people, but it's it's the kind of place where... Ordinary folks can do extraordinary things when they work together and they communicate. And, you know, I'm sort of the Woody Allen of Fidelity. I just show up and, you know, I show up to more meetings. And, you know, I remember one year I had an odd 7 a.m. meeting, which is early. Usually our meetings start at 8 a.m., but somebody wanted to see me or somebody was there. So we did a 7 a.m. meeting so then the meeting ends at eight and i'm kinda hungry and i see that somebody else is hosting an eight a.m. meeting that hadn't started so i go in to to, to grab a muffin and then the host and the management walk in <laughs> i think it was joel hosting an irish bank so i was like oh hi and they thought i was there to see the meeting when i really wanted a muffin but anyway i was like yeah sure i'll I'll listen to your story I, you know I, I had to fudge it and so we listened and it turned out that the irish economy was coming back and i don't know because it was ireland the stock was like at eight times earnings and there were only like three banks of any size in ireland and you know it turned out there's a certain serendipity involved with the business that again at fidelity there's so many companies sometimes joel and i are just like what are you you know what's going on right now is there a call that could be of interest or is there a company management coming in you know every week you know on fridays i look at the schedule for the next week and it's just like uh-oh, these are two companies that are in at the same time. we got to move one of them. Or, wow, you know, I definitely have to see this company because, you know, oil and gas is way out of favor, and, you know, this management team has done a decent job surviving over time. And, you know, the ability to stay current on lots of industries and lots of geographies, and, and then there's sort of luck. Every once in a while you meet management's that help you, I mean again, over thirty years, Barry one important you know clearly the the you know the o one internet bubble burst was you know an important event, but what was most important, I think, was the aftermath in the sort of o three o four period most growth investors were still hiding under their desks. They were shell-socked. In many cases, they were experiencing outflows. And I remember again, just you know, seeing on our meeting schedule a company meeting for Ask Jeeves A-S-K-J, sure. which I believe. Sure.
2: Early, uh, early search engine.
1: Exactly. And I believe it's now owned by Interactive Group. but. You know again, it's like what motivated me to say, "I think I should go and hear this story. The stock had I think had gone from like five to a hundred and was back to like bottomed at two and was at eight. so I said, you know, a hundred to eight means expectations are low. maybe I'll learn something." You know, and again at fidelity, you can, you know, between you and me, I can go and in a half hour learn something and then politely leave. And you know, I guess I, I take my job very seriously. You know, I have pictures of my shareholders in my office, and I just decided, you know, if I'm going to do my job, I'm in the I'm in the fashion industry. I've got to look and consider all possibilities. If management has come, I think As Jeeves was based in New York, not in California, but, you know, if management has traveled all the way to Boston, right to our offices, to tell us what's going on, I should at least attend, and I should be ideally prepared. I've just told you two stories, Barry, where I wasn't prepared, but, you know, engage with management, ask some intelligent questions, try to understand and empathize with management, you know, sort of what has happened, where are you going, what your goal is. So Ask Jeeves had hired a new CEO, bright young man, and he said, our niche is natural language search, which means in Google you would type in, you know, population Morocco, and Google would figure out what you wanted. But in Ask Jeeves, you would type in, what is the population of Morocco? And that, you know, they had like one one or 2% market share, and the goal was to go to five or six, and that was going to sort of lead them to profitability and, and a much bigger business. So at some point, I forget, we had a young search engine analyst, I guess. I can't remember who was hosting the meeting, maybe a small-cap analyst or fund manager. But I said, can we just step back and explain, you know, the lay of the land for search engines. So, you know, he sort of flippantly said, "Well, you know, Google is crushing everybody. They have 40% market share, plus they're doing the search for I think it was AOL, so they had 40% plus the 15 or 20% that was AOL related search. So they had 55% market share and they were crushing everybody and then i think yahoo had bought overture and maybe microsoft had some skin in the game somewhere but you know it was like 55 to 60 then a 25 percent player and then a several you know very smaller players so again you know barry i don't know what happened but i just you know what's the key to my success i just say why you know or please elaborate. So I said, God, why is Google doing so well? And, and what was the answer? It, the answer was, you know, they have a better algorithm. They have a larger index because they have so much market share. They're seeing more searches and, you know, they're just innovating faster. And I think, you know, as I said, you know, the quote, and I, do, I would have to check my notes, and if you want, Barry, I do have my notes from that meeting. You know, they are crushing everybody. There is no way we're going to catch Google. We do, Our our plan does not, we don't need to beat Google at what they're doing. We're going to play in this little niche. So again, by that point, Barry, I was already 13 years into the Contra Fund, and I had developed this idea of best of breed. And I... You know, listen politely to the Ask Jeeves story for another couple of (laughs) minutes, and I excuse myself. And in my mind, I was thinking, I want to own Google. I don't, (laughs) you know.
2: That's what I was hearing between the lines. They they convinced you to buy their competitor.
1: Exactly. So again, you (laughs) know, by attending meetings, by paying attention, you know listen, your readers can listen to podcasts. They can listen to YouTube interviews, which I would highly recommend they do. They can read the papers. They can pay attention. They can watch what their kids are doing. They watch what their friends are doing. But you know, that was a data point by a well-placed competitor that clearly showed that Google was doing special things and was a special company. So. And I think at that time, maybe it was '03. There were already perhaps a couple of articles about, you know, Google hiring Eric Schmidt as the CEO, preparing to go public. Whatever it was, there was some groundswell of articles about Google. Um, And so I was very interested when Google announced they were going to go public. And again, the backdrop was the, the growth investor was struggling the mark i can 't remember exactly what was happening in the market, but they came public in August of o four right. August you know here we are in August of twenty twenty you know things quiet down a little bit, people are taking vacation, but I was there front and center, Sergey Brin and Eric Schmidt you know came on the road show, and again, you know do a little preparation, open the prospectus. And Google had doubled the revenue in o two, doubled the revenue in o three, and doubled the revenue in the first quarter of o four. It was like, "Oh my gosh, they are doing something right." You know, by the way, operating margins were like twenty percent or twenty five even. And they had a billion dollars of cash on the balance sheet before they went public., huh, so that's amazing.
2: Yeah, I, so again, I'm going to share it. Yeah. I'm going to share a very quick Google story, and Please it was do. that period. It was 2002, and I had been publishing for a few years on Yahoo, Yahoo GeoCities,
0: mm-hmm. and I
2: get an invite to be a beta tester for one of the early versions of Google. And you just had to use it for ten minutes, and oh my God, this is so much better than anything you could find whatever you want almost instantly. So I write back and say, happy to be a beta tester. By the way, I'm in finance. Do you guys need any money? I'd love to make an investment. They write back, we're good. Thanks anyway. <laughs> I want to say that was 01 or, or 02. But um, it was so clearly so clearly superior. So Will, let's talk a little bit about your process. How do you look at a company? Where do you begin? Not every Google falls into your lap through a competitor's How do you start the process of deciding what you want to think about purchasing?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Barry. And I would just urge uh, your listeners that if you want to invest, you know, wisely over the long term, you know, you have to make a commitment. You know, it's a very competitive world, but, you know, know yourself Stay within your circle of competence. I mean, Warren Buffett is, you know, the greatest investor of our generation. And, you know, he's out there on YouTube. Please listen to a couple of interviews with Warren Buffett. He always talks about staying within his area of expertise. And, you know, he knows the insurance industry really well, the financial industry. He knows consumer products very well. And in a fascinating way, Barry, he always says, you know, when the Internet hit, you know, I was curious if the Internet was going to affect if people were going to be drinking Coca-Cola or chewing gum, and he decided not. But, you know, you have to monitor what's happening. But, uh, you know, I'm interested in companies that I think are going to be bigger and better in the next, you know, call of three to five, seven years. And I'm interested in companies that are doing well or getting better right now. That was one of the great, you know, insights, you know talking to Peter Lynch, working with Peter Lynch, watching Peter Lynch, you know, especially the small and mid-cap companies. I mean, you know, as we talked about with Google, I mean, if if you're a a billion in revenues, you know, why shouldn't you be growing much faster than a company with a hundred billion of revenues? And, you know, so if you really have something special, consumers should know it and see it and, you know, want it. So I I am... Intrigued with the subset of companies that are growing quickly. And usually, frankly, Barry, it's easier to find, you know, to go from the specific company to the sort of neighborhood or the general theme than it is to start a priori and say, oh gosh, the internet, therefore, you know, I'm going to find some internet right. companies. For me, it's you know starting bottoms up and you know i think your listeners and you know potential investors are well served by saying okay what has this company done in the last five years you know have they grown their revenues have they improved their margins you know have they expanded into new markets you know and then try to understand what management wants to do in the next five years and try to decide, you know, what you think the likelihood of that management team to, to execute on their plan. And, you know, so I'm a little concerned when, you know, these special purpose acquisition companies are coming and, you know, they really don't have a track record. So, you know, I always say, let's see what you buy and what you pay and try to assess the management team that's doing the buying and, you know, what have they done if they sort of good at, you know, rolling up companies, but not so good at integrating them, I'm not that interested.
2: How much of this is art and how much of this is science? I I was going to ask it, is this a qualitative assessment? Is this a quantitative assessment? But you strike me as someone who is pre-naturally insightful at evaluating companies' managements and products. It's not just here's the numbers. Anybody can look at the cager, anybody can look at the EBITDA. Not everybody can consistently pick companies that beat the index. So so how much of this is Will Danoff magic, and how much of this is something else? It's
1: <laughs> Probably a lot of something else, Barry, because I I don't have that much magic, and I certainly, after 30 years, I'm not sure if I have any magic left. But it's it's competitive, and you, you have to play to your strengths. And you know, as I said, one of the advantages of, of you know a fidelity is the management teams are willing to talk to us and and you know share some of the insights. they have and ideally you know you're in the business of asking good questions I'm in the business of asking good questions so I do try to empathize with management and you'd be surprised Barry even the most successful CEOs like to be recognized they like Mm -hmm. to be thanked for their efforts you know they like to be treated as you know sort of guests and as you know special people so when these managements come to boston you know i like to be prepared i like to offer them you know some water or coffee or a donut or whatever they want and you know sometimes we have lunches and it's just a matter of you know what do you like for lunch you know i don't want you to have a a cheeseburger if you don't like cheeseburgers so anyway you know i i do think that a little empathy as an investor goes a long way. And, you know, I, I do think that if if you step back and try to put yourself in the shoes of an entrepreneur and think about, you know, what is, you know, this CEO really thinking about? And you know, that I think makes you a better investor as well. Because so often you know they've had a a big idea or they've had an insight you know the michael dell let's go direct you know the pc business was a, it was a commodity business but he figured right. out you know a better way to get closer to his customer but you know when you think back to you know someone i think he was in high school and he started to you know take computers apart and put them back together and add certain features you know, I think he was adding floppy disk drives or hard disk drives. I forget. He, You know, he, he was able to soup up, you know, a basic IBM PC and then other PCs to make them better. You know, it's just like this guy has a passion for what he's doing and try to tap into, you know, where do you see the bigger opportunities? Why are you doing well? Where do you think your vulnerabilities are? And if you have these discussions early on, you know, in your learning about a company, maybe later, you know, three or four years down the road, that becomes a really important issue that, you know, these entrepreneurs often have a sixth sense of, you know, what they need to do. And and then, of course, hopefully, they're planting seeds and, you know, strengthening their company, hiring new executives that can, you know, prepare them for whatever competitive onslaught or the change in the market so that they can capitalize on it. But, you know, you you have to decide, you know, is the executive in it for the money or in it to build something really special? I mean, we talked about, you know, am I trying to build a company where people are going to say, "My gosh, I can't." You know, the world is a better place because of you know Instagram or WhatsApp or um, you know whatever. My you know Microsoft, you know Teams. I, you know it's a different. It's a it's a it's another way of looking at things. And you know, I think something like a new company like Shopify really is dedicated to making entrepreneurs, you know, more successful helping merchants sell online in a very, you know, sort of easy way. And, you know, they're building a, you know, what seems to be a very powerful business. And, you know, it's taking off and COVID has been a huge tailwind for them. But again, when you listen to management and, you know, you can go on Twitter and follow the founders there or you know go on YouTube and listen to some interviews and decide for yourself are these the sorts of people I want to partner with huh. um, quite, quite you know. interesting
2: so well let's talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of running a fund more or less as a single manager how does that affect your decision making versus so many funds that seem to be run by committees
1: that's a great question Barry. Ned Johnson who, you know, I believe is the chairman emeritus of Fidelity now, who built the firm, you know, from the mid 70s through let's say 2015, so a great 40-year run, believed in accountability. And I think, you know, in life we all have to be accountable. So he really liked the idea of having single managers responsible for individual funds. I am responsible for the performance of the Contra Fund. I have a great team of analysts that I work closely with, and in some cases, I will buy a stock, the recommendation of an analyst. But usually I work and say, you know, okay, what are you covering? What do you like? Why do you like it? And if this is your very best idea and you think this company is doing something special and they're going to gain market share profitably over time, let's just call the company together. Let me know next time you're going to do an update call or a post quarterly earnings call and I'll just hear the story myself. And, you know, Peter Lynch used to joke and say, we're just asking for a picture after someone offers you a blind date. You know, huh. we, we want to do some basic work, and, you know, Joel Tillinghouse, my great, you know, long-time colleague, just says, you know, if you would simply avoid unprofitable companies, that, you know, would improve your performance significantly. Now, the world has changed in 30 years, and the biotech industry has become bigger and better and leveraged all these great insights into the human genome so that you can go from losing a lot of money to FDA approval of a drug that turns into a billion-dollar blockbuster very quickly. But, you know, for the most part, I think, you know, there are certain lessons that we've learned, but, you know, when do you sell a stock, Barry? You sell a stock when you have a better idea or when the fundamentals deteriorate. So if you're casting a wide net, you're, you know, attending a lot of company meetings, you're listening to a lot of calls, you know, I don't know, I think over 30 years, Barry, the numbers are, you know, let's say on average, I talk to five management teams a day, that's 25 management teams a week, 50 weeks, you know, in a working year, 1,200 companies a year, over 30 years. You know some crazy number of of company meetings, you know thirty thousand you know interviews I've had that you know if as I said, the poker game you know this one sounds a little better, I'm gonna buy this one this one sounds a little worse, I'm gonna sell this one. it's sort of like tasting i''m I'm, I'm a chef making the master that everyone is going to hopefully love. And, you know, but you've got to taste the stew all the time. It needs a little more pepper, a little little more salt, a little less of this. You know, that's sort of the day-to-day operation. But hopefully, you know, every year I can find, you know, one name, you know, maybe one name a year that I can make a large position.
2: So I have so many questions about that exact thing. And I'll ask a short one and then a a more nuts and bolts longer question. So you're doing, over the course of your career, tens of thousands of company calls. How finely tuned is your BS detector? And let me me phrase that a little more nicely. When Mm -hmm. you're speaking to a manager, do you get a pretty immediate sense of, hey, this guy is telling a great story because there's a really something substantial underneath or hey this guy's a salesman and he's selling me a line of stuff that I'm not I'm not biting. On. Like how how do you read people in those calls?
1: Yeah no Barry you you made a very good point earlier that you know your emotional quotient is very important in this business but I would say sitting across the table and asking some very basic questions can give you a very good sense of management. You know, are they humble, are they honest, are they willing to, you know, be realistic? But, you know, you have to understand, as I said, okay, you know, this management has traveled halfway around the world to talk to Fidelity, you know. Yeah, maybe we are the largest shareholder, or maybe we could be the largest shareholder, but there's a reason why this management team is here why is it you know and often you know there is a reason you know they want to do a secondary offering and raise money they want to do an acquisition and therefore they want a, a higher stock price so they have a richer currency to do the acquisition but you know i i would say that ninety nine percent of the management teams that we talk to are honest and you know once in a while you know, different people do tell the stories more humbly or, or more arrogantly, but you you want to see, as I said earlier, you know, management with passion. I, I would say one way to reduce the risk of, you know, the arrogant CEO is to watch how the entire management team interacts and ideally you see you know, more than just one great leader, but an entire team, you know, the COO, Mm -hmm. the CFO, the CSO, you know, does the entire C-suite sing the same, you know, song from the hymn book? You know, are they all on the same page? Do they work well together? Do they seem to, you know, I remember, you know, again, it all goes back to, you know, I was the retail analyst. I'm, you know, at a dinner with the the great Sam Walton, you know, one of the, you know, truly great, you know, post-war legends. Yeah. uh, Yeah. And, you know, people are asking him all sorts of questions. And Sam was like, well, you know, Jack Shoemaker, why don't you answer that one? Don Soderquist, why don't you take that one? Paul Carter, why don't you take that one? David Glass, why don't you take that one? And, you know, he was, a very effective leader. And, you know, you just realize that this was a very powerful culture. You know, we're going to lower prices and, you know, sort of enable, you know, middle class Americans and rural Americans, you know, to live a better life by, you know, sort of being more efficient, you know, embracing, you know, you think back. And again, I, I didn't appreciate it at the time, but Sam and his team were aware of Saul Price's new price club which was the membership warehouse club they copied it or experimented themselves you know they were open to a new idea and they you know started the sam's uh, club sam's business club. and i think with sam's then they sort of learned about the food business which became very important and started opening supercenters you know and they were aware of carrefour in france and I don't know how it's pronounced, M-E-I-J-E-R-S, which was a hypermarket up in the upper Midwest. So, you know, again, you want to see managements that are open to new ideas, open to adjacent markets, willing to experiment. You know, I like the management that, you know, we're, we're, we're going to try a few things. They may not work. They may not. You know, I did really well early on with George Sherman at Danaher, You know, and George used to always talk about, you know, one, like, business reviews and the Danaher business system. And, you know, he had studied uh, the great plants, you know, the manufacturing techniques in Japan, the Toyota business system, Dr. Ono. And then he went to Korea. But, you know, I was like, George, you know, tell me about this. And, you know, chaka chaka, which was, I think, the either the Japanese or Korean term for just-in-time inventory and the idea of reducing waste. Barry, this is like, you know, waste is time. It's, waste is inventory. Waste is like if you have to move from, you know, one part of the kitchen to the other part of the kitchen. You know, you just sort of say, this guy can go deep. And, you know, huh. so yes, there is some arrogance for a successful uh, executive and you want to be careful about that. But again when you know what I've what I've loved during this COVID period is to be able to zoom with management teams and there are a large portion, frankly, of American management teams that have emphasized and prioritized the health and safety of their colleagues. And it's been, you know, very inspiring to hear, you know, these These great executives understand that they have to be on the front line they have to make sure their people are are safe and a lot of the companies have invested a lot of money you know in protective gear and you know thinking hard about the return to work and you know so anyway yes it, it is a concern and again I would urge your listeners YouTube these executives decide if you like their arc you know how did you come to this company and you know what was the the great insight and i mean let's let's remember you know bernie marcus was fired by handy dan and you know he started the home depot in his forties so you don't have to be a college dropout at you know twenty years old to start the latest tech company you experience matters and if you are dedicated and you know have the right skill set you can you know, be a great success later in life. I, I do like smart, motivated, passionate folks who have done it before. As I said, you know, what have you done for me in the last five years? What are you going to do in the future? I mean, I remember when Mark Zuckerberg came out on the IPO Roadshow. And, you know, you know what's the right question for a 27-year-old who I, I think at the time had – 3 quarters of a billion 750 million daily active users you know it's just like what you have accomplished is is remarkable you know right. and then try to learn from these folks and anyway and you want to try to
2: uh, go ahead
1: yeah no 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 i mean it was i remember mark showed up in a t-shirt and a hoodie and i was like that's great that's what we want we want somebody to be who they are but I will tell you that I projected my Facebook account, which had like 30 friends, onto you know the conference room wall just to try to make him feel a little more comfortable. It was just like we're engaged with our product. And when Evan Spiegel from Snapchat came public, the analyst made a Snapchat story when he came in, and we we showed it to Evan, and he loved it. You know, you got to kind of try to connect with these executives at their level you know like when i was the stores analyst and even now as a fund manager when these companies come around it's just like we should go shopping together let's go to your store together you don't want to be in a conference room i don't want to be necessarily be in a conference room let's go out there and jason weiner who's one of my close colleagues has done a great job with uh, some of the fidelity funds and growth funds and You know, for a while there, every time management was coming in early in sort of the early days of the Internet, he was going onto their website and is like, you know, you talk about, you know, what management says and what they're doing. He's like, this all sounds great, but I don't see any of those initiatives on the front page of your website. And it was just like, ooh, you know, why not?
2: That's (laughs) a good question.
1: Yeah. So anyway, but the other point, Barry, and your listeners have to keep in mind that, Whatever management says, there is accountability, you know, every quarter. You know, Warren Buffett doesn't like quarterly earnings. You know, Jamie Dimon doesn't like quarterly earnings. But the reality is every quarter you have more fundamental data by which to at least analyze what has happened. And every industry is cyclical. Every industry is affected by covid or the global financial crisis or the internet bubble but it should make sense oh god you know argentina oil prices spiked in the last quarter therefore our raw material costs went through the roof our gross margins were down but guess what It's a two-quarter phenomenon, and we're going to be back to more normal level, you know, the airline. Oh, God, oil prices, you know, jet fuel went way up. Our margins were down, but that's going to affect everybody in our industry. So we're going to be relatively okay. We're still expanding. We still have, you know, a low-cost operation because we only use the same Boeing 737s. And the other guys are going to struggle, blah, blah, blah.
2: So so it, sounds it has like to make
1: sense. <laughs> I remember meeting the great Herb Kelleher. And uh-huh. I, I think one of my questions, one, you know, again, Fidelity is a great place to manage money. For whatever reason, Herb came in and everybody was at a tech conference or everybody was at a healthcare conference. I think there were two other investors and me in the meeting and I was like, Herb, the great Warren Buffett says, you know, he got, you know, he lost a lot of money in U.S. Air. How can you make money in the airline industry? He <laughs> said, Warren bet on the wrong airline. <laughs> but we talked a little bit about the idea of flexibility. And, you know, what is management supposed to be doing? Management has to pay attention. And he gave some example that when Midway Airlines was opening up or there were some new gates, they called and said, hey, someone canceled on us. We've got six gates. You know, it was like a Thursday afternoon. But do you want them? You've got to let us know ASAP. And Herb and his team, like, pulled an all-nighter. And by Friday afternoon, they said, yes, we want them and here are the terms that we want and they negotiated but you know that's sort of what an active manager should be doing we you know you have to pay attention and hopefully you bet big when you see a big opportunity
0: cutter.economicforum.com
2: So will you've mentioned so many fascinating stories about so many companies Walmart and Starbucks and Costco and Amazon and Southwest and Home Depot I got to ask how many of these companies are you still long or more generally when you find a company like a Home Depot or a Starbucks how long do you stay with them and How can you tell when something is just a temporary wobble or a more significant threat to the business model?
1: That's a great question, Barry. And again, we're always learning. We're always trying to improve. And I've made so many mistakes over the years. But I'd say maybe in the last 15 years, I realized that lowering my turnover would change my process to think longer term and therefore sort of raise the bar of the companies that I was buying to say, hey, if you think about it, Barry, if I am going to own this stock for the next 10 years, it better be a really high quality company. And I better have a high degree of conviction that the company is going to be bigger and better in the next five years. So maybe I want to do another couple of months of research to make sure I really understand the company's competitive advantages, I really know the management team and the entire, you know, culture of the company and why they're going to do so well and to better understand their product roadmap and the innovation and the competitive set. So that's helped me a lot and so, you know, I've I've tried to stay in companies and not be faked out and sort of, again, what is sort of market noise, you know, worried about some tweet or, you know, some concern about inflation or, you know, the dollar moving this way or that way, which is sort of irrelevant in most cases to the strength and long-term profitability of a company. I would say, and I'd urge your listeners and I'd urge you to think about this idea of when in doubt... Check the fundamentals. When in doubt, huh. listen to the latest quarterly webcast. When in doubt, look at the latest presentation to investors. When in doubt, you know if you were, if you can
2: call the company. So that because that's really intriguing, and I have to yeah. ask you: most people go out, they buy a thousand shares of stock, they can jump all in or all out very easily. Mm-hmm. you're obviously swinging around a lot more weight. How do you enter any given stock? Is it a position that you put a toe in the water and build over time? Do you have a specific strategy? I know some people like to add to what's working and subtract to what's not. How do you own an Amazon or a Home Depot? Is it, is it a slow, gradual process or what, what's the method behind that?
1: Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, Barry, we all would love to have a huge amount of conviction. You know, when I think about some of the great investors I know, you know, the Bill Millers, the Henry Ellen Bogans, you know, I think they have more conviction than I do or they get it earlier. I'm trying to improve. And, you know, often it can be a meeting where you just, you know, meet Someone who's running an important division or a smaller division, and you're like, "Wow, I was out uh at PayPal and I met someone there who I thought was really exceptional and again, when you can visit with the management team and get beyond you know the c f o or the treasurer or even the c e o and meet some of the people who are in the field who you know truly know the product set." in the competitive set you say wow you know this makes sense to me so anyway whatever it takes to get conviction and you know i've told the analysts if you don't understand something tell the management you want to fly out to headquarters and you know spend more time it's okay you know no one the light bulb sometimes i'm spending a lot of time when i'm talking to management they're like well why don't you guys own more stock and i've got to say you know i'm I made a mistake, but you know, one of the great lessons over 30 years, Barry, and this is important for all your listeners. If a stock has doubled or even tripled, you have not missed it. And I don't like really? to give all my secrets, but if a stock has doubled or tripled, you have not missed it. You have to say, you know, have the mental whiteout that Peter Lynch always talks about for the past and say, what is going to happen in the future? Because let's, step back. Bill Gates, Michael Dell, they didn't sell after the first double. They didn't sell after the first triple. So yes, I do think it's an excellent idea to say I would like to own this stock for the next decade or two decades because I understand you know the niche that the company is fulfilling. I think they're in a big market. I think the management team is going to continue to innovate and continue to grow, make rational decisions about expanding and developing new products, and they, they understand their customer, they want to delight their customer, blah, blah, blah. So the reality is, Barry, that I was influenced by Warren Buffett. I was with Warren in 2012. He invited Fidelity to do an MBA day in Omaha, and you know we were all I was given a chance to ask him a question I said Warren I'm managing a hundred billion dollars what advice would you give me and he said when you have a good idea bet big and if you look back and you know we were influenced Joel and I were influenced by Peter Winch who had like a thousand stocks in in Magellan right. and Joel still runs with a huge number of stocks in low-price stock funds you know he's he's an exceptional intellect and can handle that but the number of stocks in counterfund fell. I literally looked at, I think I might've had 500 or 600 stocks at the time, and I just said, let's look at the bottom 300 and say up or out. And wow. I looked at the top 50, and Peter always talks about this. You know, the best stocks are probably stocks you already own. You need to bet bigger. So I was more concentrated. You know, but you mentioned earlier, what you know what's really happening right now Technology has been a massive tidal wave. The Internet and software, great Mark Andreessen, you know, said it best. Software is eating the world. It, it, it's it's more efficient. It makes less mistakes. It's enabling, you know, people all over the world to connect with each other. And so the So let's software, talk about some of those,
2: yeah. those companies. Yeah, so
1: the, so those... the, the, the the short answer is the software industry is growing rapidly, it's highly profitable, and the, you know many parts of the tech industry are not capital-intensive. The great Apple, you know, Steve Jobs is a genius to convince Hanai, Foxconn, to make the phones for him, so he earns a high margin, and he doesn't have to spend a lot of money building factories. But, you know, you think about what, you know, Amazon has done generating a lot of free cash flow. Apple's generating a huge amount of free cash flow. Facebook is generating a huge amount of free cash flow. Microsoft is generating a huge amount of free cash flow. Technology, the tech industry is knowledge-based, it's higher margin, and for the moment, you know, it's still growing because it's a global industry.
2: Those are three of your biggest holdings you just ran through there, yep, Amazon, yep, Facebook, yep. and Microsoft. Mm-hmm. So someone, I mentioned to a friend, I was interviewing you, yep. and I said, if you're going to ask, and he's a tech geek uh, and runs a tech-focused hedge fund, I said, if you're going to ask Will Danoff a question about technology, what would it be? And he surprised me with why the S&P 500 as a benchmark, aren't you really more of a NASDAQ 100 guy? and I thought that was kind of an interesting observation. How do you respond to that?
1: You know, there's a lot of truth to that. I am much more of a growth investor. I am, in my opinion, a capital appreciation fund with a growth bias. So I do have a go anywhere, a large grow anywhere component and it's just the technology has been such a powerful tidal wave that I've probably stayed in technology longer and, and bigger than you know I would have expected. Benchmarks are important and Fidelity for legal reasons does not want to change the benchmark. It's actually sort of time-consuming and cumbersome to change benchmark, it probably makes And the sense.
2: S&P 500 is hard enough to beat, as is. Yeah, you know, I mean,
1: there are some of my larger, more institutional investors who do look at, you know, the Russell 1000 growth, you know, versus mm-hmm. Contra, and there, I'm not as, frankly, the performance has not been as good, and I don't know if if my bench was the Russell 1000 growth, if I would be even bigger in some of these names. But so
2: that's interesting. You know, yeah,
1: I mean, it is what it is. I I do think benchmarks are important. I mean, what, what Larry Fink and, you know, John Bogle did with passive investing has been really good for the individual investor. You know, you don't want to be in a situation when, you know, Oh my God! Danoff, or Reinholds have lost their fastball. I'm going to sell. The, the beauty of the index, if you just buy an index, is I'm going to own the index, and I'm going to I'm going to buy the index every year with my 401k contribution. And you know, when I retire, I'm hopefully going to have a nice nest egg to retire with, you know, as opposed so to. speaking so speaking you know, with of retirement, stocks with individual yeah. funds—you've got to, you know—you're worried, and you know human beings worry a lot. So I'm worrying a lot for all of my investors, Barry. <laughs> trying my best.
2: So, so I bet they're worried about when you're going to retire. You've been there for thirty years. Do you have any plan on leaving anytime soon, or are you going to run contra for another thirty years? <laughs>
1: you know I the stock answer barry is that that i feel i can add value and as long as i feel i can add value i'm going to continue to run contra fund as i said fidelity is a wonderful place to manage money we're hiring new analysts young analysts all the time every year and it's those young analysts that provide extra energy new insights sort of an openness to new ideas you know What do I know from Tinder and Match.com, but, you know, if I can ask the young analysts, you know, what phones they're using, what apps they're using, you know, tell me about this technology, you know, again, if you think Airbnb is going to go public, you and I, if Are we going to sleep on somebody else's couch or in somebody else's apartment? Uber, are you going to get into somebody's car? Often when you hear the story for the first time, you're like, no way, but you have to keep an open mind. And by working with my younger colleagues, they help me stay open and, you know, try to embrace Change and the new ideas. And, you know, when I think about the future, you know, whatever power artificial intelligence and machine learning are going to make this great software industry even more productive and even better. The intersection of software and healthcare. If you think about all the, you know, hopefully the great advances that are going to be made in, in health and preventive medicine through you know leveraging big data and ai it's just remarkable and no, you know no I'm, I'm optimistic and i think you know i think the us is a leader in the software industry and in internet technology you know when you think about virtual reality and artificial reality and you know ambient computing i mean this whole idea of alexa you know jeff bezos you know is a great experimenter he's a great inventor and to you know be able to walk into a room and talk to the computer and as I understand it, pretty soon you're going to be walking down, you know, you're in New York, you're walking down Madison Avenue, oh Barry, we know you like Frappuccinos, there's a Starbucks around the corner, you can get 10% off right now.
2: Sounds like a scene out of the movie Minority Report.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, Environment well, what you can aware. imagine is going to happen. Yeah. You know, and then of course all the innovation around the green industry and evs and solar and wind i think that it's going to be these u.s companies and and silicon valley and the entrepreneurs are going to find better ways to you know to do things and hopefully consumers are going to benefit but sounds as, sounds
2: optimistic uh, as investors
1: you know we have this great opportunity to partner with you know, Elon Musk or, you know, other truly exceptional Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, Mark Benioff. I mean, these, these are truly exceptional people. And, you know, here we are, you know, John Q. Public can, can be a partner, buy a share.
2: I know I only have you another few minutes, another three minutes. So let me Mm -hmm. plow through my uh, speed round questions. And let's see if we can get through these quickly. What are you watching these days? Any favorites on Netflix or Amazon Prime? Yeah.
1: I don't have a lot of time, Barry, but I did really like Fada, which is... uh, So stressful. uh, Yeah, I like the intensity. I guess I'm a sucker for for thrillers, and, you know, I I liked... uh, House of Cards. And, you know, I'm a big shareholder of Netflix, and I think what Netflix has done is, is truly exceptional. And if I just had amazing. to, I would I would just Google the, you know, Netflix top 10. I've enjoyed uh, a lot of that stuff. But Fada is my favorite of all time.
2: Let's talk about books. What are you reading now? And what are some of your favorites? Uh, yeah, during COVID, I, I really
1: enjoyed a book called City of Thieves,
2: mm-hmm. which
1: is about uh... leningrad during the war A good friend recommended it and and now right now i'm reading this uh... biography the one volume biography of churchill i'm forgetting the author but it was published in like two two or three years ago and i mean it's just remarkable his parents sort of ignored him but he was an exceptional talent and again barry one insight is if you find a ceo or an entrepreneur who's exceptionally smart like winston churchill was exceptionally smart you know they're going to possibly do really exceptional things and you know and, he, uh, made his, he made a lot of mistakes but you know when his time but defeated came, the
2: nazis <laughs> yeah
1: you know when the time came he was the right guy so you know one thing <laughs> over 30 years you try to collect executives and sometimes their sector is out of favor but when they come into favor the you know the best of breed companies shine
2: what sort of advice would you give a recent college graduate who is interested in a career in asset management
1: i think you gotta you know learn to swim by jumping in the water so you know start a paper portfolio and and start investing ideally you know Get your you know lawn mowing savings or whatever savings you've got, and even with you know a thousand dollars, you can buy a couple of shares of of your favorite companies. You you've got to get in there. But the access to information has changed so much, Barry. In the last thirty years, when I started as a retail analyst at Fidelity, my first job was to like write letters to the companies, send me the investment packet, send me the last two annual reports. And, you know, the last quarterly report and the 10Q, I mean, it, it took like two weeks to get started. And now, you know, it takes two seconds to Google, you know, IBM investor relations, you know, you can YouTube the new CEO, you can do your work sort of instantaneously. So, you know, you just got to get in there and, and do some research, you know, listen to the webcast and, you know, place your bets. So. I I think you you know you just got to get in there and do it and you know yeah. not everybody wants to but I was a, a sort of a mediocre analyst and you know over time by doing I have learned what works for me and the only way you're going to learn your style and you know what works for you is to actually do it and you know you got to be accepting you know mistakes are a big part of this business try to learn from your mistakes you know the great George Van Der who was a great mentor of mine, and I learned a lot from George. You know, he talked about keeping an investment diary uh-huh. on one little, you know, on one little index card, or you know, whatever the the digital version of an index card. Why am I buying this stock? You know, I'm going to buy you know XYZ company at fifty dollars a share because they're expanding into India. India is a huge opportunity. I think, you know, they're earning $2 right now, but if they continue to grow outside of India by 10 to 15% and India adds, you know, another, you know, 500 million of revenue at a certain margin, I think they can go from $2 of earnings to $5 in earnings.
2: Let me yes. let me ask you our final question now. What do you know about the world of investing today you wish you knew when you first joined the Contra Fund 30 years ago.
1: Barry, we've, we've talked a lot about sort of best of breed, great entrepreneurs. I, I guess I wish I had invested bigger with, you know, these superior managers when they were younger and, you know, earlier on. You know, if I had met Sam Walton when he went public and I had that, you know, insight to say, wow, this is an exceptional story, but what's so hard, Barry, is when you first meet the company, as I said earlier with Airbnb or Uber, it's like, what are you talking about? you know <laughs> or, you know, there's always the skeptic and you, you have to try to anticipate and see around the corner and it's not easy. But that that's what I would I would encourage people to, you know, keep thinking about the future keep thinking about trends stay within your circle of competence and stay flexible and continue to cast a wide net you've really got to look everywhere i mean if you think about what what's happened in china you know i think china's grown their gdp 10 percent a year for the last 30 years you know It's going to overtake the U.S., you know, probably in the next decade. I mean, just it's it's remarkable what compounding can do. And, you know, you just try to anticipate and project out into the future implications for, you know, what you're hearing right now. And, you know, just try to stay informed. But, you know, there's a lot of opportunity. Yeah, it's really
2: great. Thanks, Will, for being so generous with your time. That was Will Danoff. He runs Fidelity's Contra Fund. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of the previous 300 or so we've had over the past six years. You can find that at iTunes, Spotify, Overcast Stitcher, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at Podcasts at bloomberg.net. Be sure to check out my weekly column on Bloomberg.com opinion. Give us a review on Apple iTunes. Sign up for our daily reads at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps us put these conversations together each week. Reggie Bazil is our audio engineer. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Our producer and booker is Michael Boyle. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.
0: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry, and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor QNB.